Hello and thank you for downloading the Reading Room podcast here on readingroom.podbean.com. On this month's uh, edition of the Reading Room, we talk to the comedian Richard Herring about his book, How Not to Grow Up. And we also talk to Lincolnshire Echo Editor uh, John Grubb, who's also the chairman for the Lincoln Book Festival. He tells us about putting together this year's festival and also their plans for next year's festival too. Uh, there's poetry from Elisa Denham. And the Reading Room Book Group this month uh, reviews Nick Hornby's A Long Way Down. Uh, we also talk to young author Ben Atkinson, who's talking about his book Walking on Cinders. And our tea break story this month comes from Richard Barter. So that's what's coming up. I'll be here at the end to tell you about what's happening next month. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, now it's time for Richard Herring. He's been writing and performing comedy on stage, radio and TV for over 20 years. First in a double act with Stuart Lee, then as a solo stand-up comedian. A few weeks ago he was here in Lincoln performing his latest show, Christ on a Bike. And our producer, Johnny Hoare, took the opportunity to speak to him about his writing and his most recent book and all the trials of getting older. I can't quite believe I'm 40. I turned 40 in, in July. I'm just living in denial. I've started wearing the clothes of a much younger man. And he's furious about it. Has only got some... They say life begins at 40, but for comedian Richard Herring, his 40th year represented something of a crisis point as he struggled to square his advancing age with a juvenile lifestyle and unwillingness to settle down. He details his struggles in his newly republished book, How Not to Grow Up. It's about the year I turned 40, ostensibly, but it's also about being a kind of immature man uh, who suddenly realises that he's a lot older than he feels like he is. As a comedian, I'd be able to kind of carry on a sort of student lifestyle, but I think I've also got quite a, you know, four-year-old sense of humour in some ways as well. So it's kind of, I just wanted to sort of look at whether that was a bad thing or a good thing to, to be still young at heart, and uh, I guess the book's looking at a year where I kind of went through a, a lot of flux, it was sort of started in kind of craziness and started with fights and all sorts of things, and then uh, hopefully over the course of the book I sort of settled down a little bit and I'm not quite as insane as I was at the start. At the start of the book, you're just kind of approaching the age of 40 and you're living this kind of hedonistic lifestyle, you know, travelling around the country, getting drunk every night, sleeping with a, a series of young women. Um, some people would hear that and think, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> so well, what happened to change your mind about that? I mean, there's a part of me that still thinks it is a sort of fantastic way to live your life in a way. I think it just becomes, if you're doing it all the time and you're getting a bit older, you're a bit more mature and it's a bit uh, unsatisfactory in a lot of ways. It is, you know, there's a lot within that, even if you're doing having a great time some of the time you're having a lot of time where you're not having a great time I think the job of being a comedian is very lonely and you know I think you do sort of take solace in a drink or women or drugs or whatever is your personal thing just to kind of get away from that loneliness but actually I think you sort of realise that that's not necessarily it's not necessarily a great way for a man of a 40 year old man to be behaving um, there is good things about it but it was actually just making me unhappy I think really it's that balance between being a grown up and but also not being sort of completely boring and dull and and either way is you know either people are childish in different ways and I was childish and, and still am in a lot of ways uh, but you know there's there's people who are, see themselves as grown up who are very selfish and think the world revolves around them which are really unpleasant childlike characteristics you know and I think it, I think there's a lot of great things about being childlike uh, having that imagination and the fun and the desire to still enjoy life so it, it's a book about trying to find the balance I suppose. So I mean obviously living this life of a stand-up comedian is quite different to a lot of people's lives do you think there's, there's things in the book that are quite universal that anyone approaching one of these big landmark ages could, could identify with? 
Yeah, I do. I think I think a lot of people have have, have identified with it. There's plenty of people who haven't kind of uh, got married or you know, haven't done what's expected of them or doing different kinds of jobs, and plenty of people who have jobs but you know still unsure about who they are. And I think everyone gets to these things. And the, these you know some like 25 year olds email me and go, oh, the book spoke to me so much because I'm going through the same thing. And you know some 50 year olds would, would go through the same thing. So it's not it's not about turning 40. It's just about that realization of not being you know of the way time passes and and that you become older, you become grown up. Because I think most of us don't. You know, my grandma, who's like now 100, but even when she was sort of 85, she would go, I still feel like I'm 26. I don't understand how I'm old. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, most of us go through that. I think, I think we sort of, you're expecting someone to arrive with a, a letter or a certificate or something saying, now you're a grown-up and you have to behave like it. And it doesn't happen. And, you're, you know, I think in our, in our current society, we're able to prolong our adolescence rights longer and longer, you know. So whether it's people playing video, you know, my dad would never have spent been in his 40s playing video games or going skateboarding or those kind of things, you know, that it's actually acceptable for people to do that you know and it's in a way that's in most ways I think it's brilliant because people are having a lot more fun and enjoying their lives and it's not like getting to 40 and thinking oh my god you know I've got to put on a cardigan and shuffle around because I'm old now you know we're, we, we, we're in this fortunate situation where you're able to be who you want to be so you know I think, I think there are themes that really speak to everyone there so I think it's a book that, that people with an open mind will enjoy I mean it's, it does it does divide people and some people get very angry about it I think you know which is kind of weird to me because a lot of people get angry about the lifestyle I was leading I think and um but they're in a different kind of lifestyle and you kind of think well what surely I mean if anything the book's about how my lifestyle was wrong uh, and how could you be angry you should be pleased that you're not living that lifestyle it almost feels like they are angry because they wish they'd done it themselves for a little bit and I think you know I think it is worth doing it for a little bit and so maybe if you're younger it's worth reading because I think you should do all these stuff while, this stuff while you're young probably and not feel pressurised into into being, being grown up too soon Absolutely and um, I mean I read it last year and it's yeah. very funny and also very very honest it, it felt very honest certainly was well, that yeah. difficult to write? Well you know when I, I pretty much started writing the book where the book ends you know so it was uh, like a, a, a more or less a year into my relationship with my girlfriend is where it ends. And, and, it, and it is quite hard to look back at stuff that's just happened 18 months and a year, two years before and try and make sense of it and work out where you are. So, you know, it was, it's hard to, it's, it's kind of hard to be on that honest. It's, you're wondering, well, what, what will people think? You think, dare I, you know, my mum might read this book as she has, you know, do I want to write about this, you know, this certain sexual thing that happened to me or this... Uh, but I've, I've, there's an author I really like called Jonathan Ames, uh, who uh, is an American writer, and he's, he's writing for TV, American TV there now. But he's written a few kind of quite honest books about his about his more perverted lifestyle than mine, I think. But I, I, I found the honesty of it kind of engaging and disarming, really. And I think that's the thing. You know, I think if you if you are absolutely honest and not not being judgmental about yourself really so much, but just to try and say this is what happened, and I, I think people appreciate it because most of us do have secrets and most of us happen to do embarrassing things, and most of us have all these feelings and fears and insecurities and we don't usually talk about them so I think it's quite nice to read a book or see a show or whatever which is about that. Can I ask you a little bit about how the book came about? You're obviously somebody with something of a, a media profile already so were you approached by the publishers or did you have to pitch the idea to them? I mean I'm not like massively famous and it's not like if I come up with a book idea someone's definitely going to do it but yeah I mean it's, it's not quite sort of starting and sitting at home writing a book and then sending it off to publishers for me it's more like I'll, I'll write up a proposal I'm doing it again at the moment I'm hoping to do another book. Anyway, it's sort of an interesting position to be in because it's not so famous that you kind of people want to definitely do everything you do but it's obviously like a little leg up from just being someone sitting in your own in your own kind of attic typing away and trying to come up with a great novel or something so I have a little leg up but not 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 a huge amount I think at the moment it's increasingly hard to get books going and obviously the book trade's like suffering a little bit through the internet and all this sort of stuff but I mean I think what's quite interesting is a lot of this comes from the stuff that I've essentially self-published which is the blog 
and it's kind of getting easier and easier to do those kind of things. You know, I just put my blog on Kindle, which you can still get it for free, but if people want to choose to get it delivered to their Kindle, they can pay for a couple of couple of pounds a month or something. And you know, so there there are actual new ways through for new writers that I think maybe publishers, in, as we have them, might uh, have to change the, what they're doing anyway. You mentioned a few times your blog. Uh, this yeah. is warming up. Um, you say on the site that it originally started about what, eight nine years ago yeah. um, as a way of tackling writer's block. Yeah. Is that something you'd recommend to other writers? Well, I thought what might happen is that. I was just sort of thought I was wasting a lot of time, and so I thought, well, maybe if I just get sit down and write something about the day before, every then that will get me warmed up. So that's why it's called warming up, and then I can write the thing I'm meant to be writing. But all that would happen, I'd write the thing, and then not do anything else for the rest of the day. But at least I'd create, you know, at least I'd done something. But I think it, it makes you very inventive, especially if writing comedically, but possibly even seriously as well. So I think it is a really good exercise because I've I've literally done it every single day for nine, eight and a half years now. There's loads of things that have been useful in stand-up, loads of things that were useful in the book, but also I think you just become a much better writer, you become much better at spotting what is interesting to write about. Uh, you become much better at making something that isn't all that interesting, interesting and amusing. You know, so if you can take something tiny and write about it in proper detail and really think it, think it, you know, it's like being, I it's like being an artist doing a, a still life, isn't it? It's kind of boring, but you've got to find the way of making it come to life and work as a, as a piece. So you're taking something very dull and then trying to wring out some truth or some some humour out of it and so, so I think yeah it makes you it makes you very good at, um, at spotting what's what's funny I think it's definitely really helped me and it gives you focus and something to do it didn't really make me it didn't really cure my writer's block as such you know but I am the kind of person that once I set my mind to something I will kind of it's very hard to get me to shake off and stop doing it you know so I think it would be quite hard to stop me doing this blog now and just to talk a little bit about the difference between performing stand-up and writing. Obviously, when you're performing stand-up, you get an immediate reaction from the audience. Writing a book's a much more solitary thing. Yeah. How, how did you find that as a comedian? The problem with stand-up is, inc- is comparatively easy, sort of certainly for me to, to do, and even to come up with stuff. You know, you can do a lot of it on stage. You can just bat an idea around on stage over a few nights. You don't actually have to sit down and write anything. So it's kind of... I used to be very disciplined in, in writing terms of certainly in the early days, or a lot more disciplined than I am, but now I find it quite hard to sit down for the requisite, you know, six or seven hours really knocking something out. But, it, you know, it does come to, it does come together eventually for me, and I, I'm, I work very much to deadlines, and once deadlines arrive, I suddenly... I did about three days in a row where I did 10,000 words each day, you know, for the book, and, and then suddenly, within a week, the first draft of the book was, was ready, you know, so it's, you know, I can... Once I get into it, I can do it. Yeah, it, it, I think I think for me, it's being able to do both of them makes makes both of them kind of enjoyable. And I, once write, once I've written a script or a book and it's finished, I feel delighted with it. And it's more satisfying, but it's just so much harder to get to get through, really. And um, finally, you, you're now a few years into your, your fourth decade, or well, fifth yeah, decade, isn't it? Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for those of us who are just approaching this sort of <laughs> landmark, can you reassure us it's not as bad as as you make out? I can't reassure you. <laughs> Um, there's lots of good things about it, but it is. I think it's however much anyone tells you, and you know that how lucky you are to be in your thirties or your twenties. You never kind of can really uh, appreciate uh, <laughs> what you know. I think you sort of you, there's something about the human mind that you can. However many part times when you get old, you get in your forties, and everything starts degrading and dropping off, and it's and it's actually fine. I'm having a lovely time, and I'm in, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life, and still creative and you know there's and fitter than I've been for quite a long time really but you do notice these little drop-offs in elements of your fitness and uh, so it, you know there is an element of it being that's the sort of start of a downhill journey 
And so I think if you're approaching it, you should be making the most. <laughs> Not necessarily in the way I did in, in my book. But, you know, well, I think my wife would like that, to no, be honest. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, not going out and fighting and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, and drinking. But, no, it's, it's, all, it's all good, you know, and I'm still... You know, I'm, I, I'm feeling, you know, the 40s have been, have been, you know, best for me, I think, yet, really. I kind of didn't really enjoy my 20s very much, and my, I kind of like my 30s more, getting a bit more into myself. And I think you just feel more comfortable with who you are, and time just starts to whiz by. And uh, so enjoy yourself while you're young. If you're old... You know, it's all right, but it was better when you were young. And How Not to Grow Up, published by Ebrew Press, is available now from all the usual places. For more, you can go, for more info, you can go to Richard's website, richardherring.com. Hello, this is Milton Jones. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren FM. Now it's time to hear from Ben Atkinson, a student at the University of Lincoln, who's published two of his own novels, The Kraken's Curse and Walking on Cinders. But before we play you the interview where we recorded recently, here's Ben reading from Walking on Cinders. Black. Pitch black. Not a sound to be heard and nothing to see. But if you concentrate, home in your senses, you might just hold on to what little grip you have on life. In the black you can see nothing, and so you concentrate on what you can taste and hear. Fear in the air, a strange taste on the lips. You've tasted it before, but you can't pinpoint where. Your brain is not working correctly and you've lost all sense of memory. Nothing exists beyond the here and now. Concentrating even harder, you try to hear. To the right of you is a regular breathing of another person. The breath is strained, but they're breathing at least. And this discovery spurs you on, and slowly you begin to remember. Friends, arguing, smiling and laughing. You have no recollection of why such things happened, but the memories are there. A picture of a landscape viewed from high above flickers before your eyes. For a moment you wonder if it's all a dream or some horrible nightmare. Only now do you discover your sense of perception has also been damaged, and you suddenly find yourself laughing inside your own head. A voice in a face fills your mind, but the image is faded and the voice is far away. Slowly, the breathing you can hear labours and the laughter takes control. You cannot fight against it because, after all that has happened, you feel safe lying here in limbo. And you realise that you don't want to fight, you don't want to survive. The laughing empowers you, quickly taking over your mind. And then it stops, as suddenly as it began. Your last thought is of peace and well-being. You're safe now. No more laughter and no more tears. Just the blackness and the beauty that lies beyond. Ben Atkinson reading from his second novel, Walking on Cinders. Uh, We had the pleasure of interviewing Ben recently, and as you'll find out, his enthusiasm is infectious. He's a very, very ambitious young man. He also presents a programme on 103 The Eye, a community radio station serving Melton Mowbray. So I started by asking Ben how he describes himself as a writer or a broadcaster. Well, probably writing, because I wrote my first novel when I was 16, and the writing was soon followed by the radio. Um, But I think the writing came almost a year earlier. Okay. Would that, I mean, would it have been with, with the publicity of uh, after writing that novel or the wanting to no, push it? Is that what gets you into radio? I don't or? think it was exactly. I got uh, I got uh, an award for my for my various work with young people and and charities that I'd done in my in my younger years at school. And um, following that, I went on the radio to be interviewed regarding this Young Citizens Award that I've received. And they said, "Oh, there's an opening for you to do a come and do a country music show." And I liked it a little bit. And uh, over the three years that I've been there, and I'm still doing it to this day, uh, I've learned a lot more. Okay, and this is, a, is this a community radio station in Melton, it, is it? It is a community radio station in Melton Mowbray, yeah, and it's um, since been uh, commissioned for a second station in Leicester, so I'm, I'm doing really well on that front. Now, for me, what triggers in my head are the stories that go along with, with country music. Now, yes. that obviously links in with your writing. Is that, is that an obvious link for you? Then? Very much so, and I was going to come to this later on, but I might as well mention it now. Uh, music is one of the biggest influences for me, and this is what comes into my second book, 
But there is a CD out there by a guy that I know in Leicester, and he is a, a, a singer-songwriter, uh, unsigned, but he produces his own CDs. And he created this CD of, of stories, in the style you say, country music stories. And I thought, that's a great inspiration for another book. So that might be where I'm going. Might be where I'm going. Let's jump back to your, your first novel. You say you wrote your first novel, The Kraken's Curse, when you were 16. I do. From that, once that was written, what was, the well, ne- what was the next step when you were 16? Originally, I just thought, I quite like writing, and I do quite a lot of it at school. Only short stories for assessments and such. And I thought, well, I'll start this and see where it takes me. And I kept going, and I kept going, and, and uh, in the end, I finished it. I thought, what can I do now? Wrote to some publishing houses, wrote to some agents, all of whom turned back and said, hello, you're 16 years old, we can't accept you because you're young. Your work's going to be rubbish because you're young. The second option they said to me was, you have not been published before, you've not got an agent. So it appeared to me at that time that publishing was a never-ending circle that it's very hard to get into because you can't be published unless you have an agent and you can't get an agent unless you're published. So I thought, what shall I do? And I went to my school and wrote a letter to the governors and asked them about um, funding me to set up my own publishing company because I knew at the time I'd done some research into self-publishing uh, third parties and myself doing distribution. And they turned around and said, yes, very good idea, and get me the money. And so I published this uh, first novel, Kraken's Curse, on my own publishing label, King Able to Seventh Press, and, and that's, that's how it started, really. And is that something you look now to, I mean, would you look to be a publisher, you know, rather than a writer? Is this going to be adding? Is it going to be Ben Atkinson, writer, publisher, broadcaster? Yeah. There's a lot of people out there, when you talk about self-publishing, who do say that the age of the publisher is dead. You can promote yourself, you don't need somebody else to do it for you. But, um, yeah, a lot of people have said to me, will you print other people's work? And I haven't said no, but I've also, in the back of my mind, know that I want to get a publishing contract because that's the way that I know I'm secure, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, I, I, that I know that I've, I've got a future in writing if I can do that. And that's why I set myself the target of doing so so pretty much i'm going to follow it i think and well let's let's move now and, uh, and look at walking on cinders because this comes with a very promotional package if you like. <laughs> yes would you say is that we've been working on that for a while is that is that the right the, the right terminology would you say i would say so package? yes a social media package perhaps right i see uh, where you're setting yourself a challenge of, uh, of of selling a thousand books yes i was told um, by a number of people during my research initial research that, that a thousand is the number at which if you go to a publisher or an agent they say wow you sold a thousand off your own back that's pretty good we might give you a chance, you know, we might sign you. Um, so we set ourselves that, that target. It wasn't plucked out of the air. And we said to ourselves, well, we'll sell a 1,000 books and then we'll try and contact agents and publishers. So we started off on social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, and started to get influences from America and interest from America, which is, I think they were ahead of us in social media. Uh, Britain's only just catching on now. Mm. America's been at it for years, uh, of course, because Facebook was developed in America years before it became hit over here. Same with Twitter, etc. Um, and a lot of American publishing magazines and accounts on Twitter have uh, retweeted about my work. I see, but also this year, I think you've, uh, you, you've said on a recent blog, you're looking at the uh, getting into this promotional cycle, certainly with Walking on Cinders, and yes. how much time that's taking up, and how much time that's taking away from your creative process. <laughs> yes, a lot. Um, I know for a fact that well, this was finished um, middle of, of 2010, um, early 2010, and I've spent um, a good year... Uh, before that and into 2010 working on the publicity and once this went off to an editor uh, it was out of my hands and since then it has been out of my hands creatively I've just been working on the business side of things promoting getting events and hopefully organizing this book tour for 2011 summertime that's my, my big my big thing at the moment you're listening to the reading room on siren 107.3 fm the reading rooms 101 books to read before you die 
Kate Tyler and the book I would recommend is The Life of Pi by Jan Martel because it's just such a, a beautiful story and such a dramatic ending as well. Sometimes the ending really makes the book and it certainly does in this case. Now it's time to stop whatever you're doing, be it decorating, ironing or defrosting the freezer. It's time to bribe your children to be quiet or sneak out into the shed with your wind-up radio with torture tacks that you got for Christmas and listen to this month's tea break. Richard Bartu, who's a favourite of ours here at The Reading Room, will be appearing at The Reading Room live on the 15th of May. Full details to come if you haven't heard them already. And um, here's Richard reading one of his many superb short stories. The Last Boat Joe didn't like her grandfather. She didn't know anyone who did. His workmen, Silas and Jem, though cast in the same austere mould, had no love for him. Joe's mother, Meg, had married Peter to escape her father's overbearing influence. Rab's scorn threatened the marriage, but he acquiesced with a grudging inevitability that accepted the winds and storms that crashed over their islands. Folks who did not know him attributed his bullying manner to the loss of his son many years earlier but this cut no ice with his wife. Rab's been selfish and malicious all his life. It didn't take Robbie's death to make him that way. I should have listened to my friends, she sighed, but I thought I knew best. There's no changing a man like that. When Meg had become pregnant, Rab looked forward to a boy to replace his drowned son. But visions of passing on his knowledge of the seas swiftly faded. Joe was no substitute for a new seaman in the family. Nevertheless, Joe grew adept at handling small boats. Peter encouraged her, prompting Rab to take an interest. It was not that he thought Joe would ever make the grade, but he could not bear anyone usurping his role as the fount of sea law. A skilled boat builder, Rab provided a safe dinghy for his granddaughter. He taught her sailing, but she quickly realised she would never match the wished-for grandson. Joe's response to his surly encouragement frustrated Rab, She put up with his sarcasm. She did her best, even when he lost his temper. Just when Rab realised that Joe was the only grandchild that he would ever have, he succeeded in alienating her. She grew conscious of her grandfather's attitude towards her mother. She noted the worn, harassed look that haunted her grandma. Joe was 13. She was at the stage when boys were beginning to take an interest. She did not respond, but did not altogether reject their approaches. Grandfather fumed as he did anything that threatened his authority. He sulked ostentatiously. This prompted Joe to assert her independence, needing only the courage to do so openly. Into this family turmoil, a newcomer appeared. Recently widowed and childless, he welcomed the loneliness of the small fishing village. Oliver Barham came first to stay at Meg's cottage, then rented a place of his own. Oliver remained friends with Meg and Peter after he moved out and was gradually accepted by the locals. Once permanent on the island, Oliver thought of sea fishing. He was no boatman and heeded Peter's advice, cautiously taking his time before putting to sea. Even then, it was under Peter's guidance, or on a couple of occasions, short fair-weather trips with Joe. Rab took an instant dislike to the stranger. Jealous of the rapport between Joe and Oliver, Rab's resentment surfaced as scathing remarks. In the bar, Rab derided those only playing at a hard man's trade. His probes about the sea and boats and weather highlighted Oliver's ignorance. What particularly incensed Rab was that Oliver never took offence. Snide comments glided over him. 
Whenever Peter intervened, Oliver would quieten him with a smile. Rab ordered Joe never to take him out to sea again. Oliver could not depend on Peter, who had his living to make, nor on Joe with school and friends to occupy her. He wanted a small boat of his own. Most boats round the island were unsuitable for a sailor of limited experience. Peter had no better suggestion than to inquire of Rab. As a boat builder, he would know what was required. At first, Rab scorned to help. Let them, he thought, see if the amateur could cope without him. But a few days later, he saw Joe bringing her boat in, with Oliver seated in the stern. That evening, Rab offered to fit out a small craft. In a few weeks, it would be ready for short sea trips. A deal was struck. For days, Rab worked alone. Silas and Jem watched as the old vessel changed shape. They had judged her unseaworthy, but under Rab's hand she took on a fresh look. Day by day, disjointed pieces of timber were transformed under coats of new paint. Rab, however, was a skilled craftsman. The boat looked fine and would stand up to calm conditions, but the poorly structured joints, concealed beneath the paint, were in danger of splitting in a rough sea. Even an experienced sailor would have problems. Oliver was introduced to his new boat. Rab claimed there were minor jobs required, so she was berthed with him for a little longer. The new owner, under Rab's guidance, took her out from there. On fine days there were sea trials, so that Oliver could develop his skills. Other days Rab would see the weather and warn Oliver not to venture out. Sure enough, as the day wore on, heavy squalls would blow up, and Oliver learned to trust Rab's judgment. One evening, Rab viewed the sky. He had listened to the shipping forecast. Tomorrow will be a fine opportunity to slip across to see the seal pups, he suggested. They make a grand sight. Joe, messing around nearby, agreed. She had visited the breeding ground several times, but only in the company of her grandfather. She heeded Rab's words. He was an expert on the weather. If he considered it safe for Oliver to go out, then it would be all right for her. She planned an early morning trip but kept it to herself. You'll need to leave early in the morning, Rab advised Oliver. The sun breaking over the cliffs is worth seeing. Do you want to ready at the crack of dawn? Early risers were astonished to notice a small white blob rising and falling on the far waves. Oliver's boat was well out from land before others were stirring, a dot in the stern showing a single occupant. The slight swell gave no hint of danger to the inexperienced, but the locals knew better. Who on earth is that fool? asked Peter. No knowledgeable seaman would dream of tackling the prevailing conditions. Distant storms in the Atlantic were speeding inwards. The various islands would soon be channelling fierce currents into a cascading turbulence, strictly avoided by all who could read the signs. Already some were muttering about rescue. Rab strolled up, unconcerned. A quick glance round showed him Joe's absence. It gave him licence to speak. It's that idiot Barham, he sneered. I always took him for a fool. Now look what he's up to. I warned him last night about the tides. He must have been out early and was fooled by the calm. He should have listened, knowing nods agreed how deceptive the sea could appear. Only too late would the true picture be discerned, as some had learnt to their cost. Rab continued. I said it wouldn't be safe, so I didn't think it would be up at this hour. By the time I got down, he'd already put out. Another figure wandered up to join the group, staring out at the speck rising and falling in the grip of the sea. Oliver Barham, unaware of the drama, watched his distant boat seesawing precariously. Rab, who had been playing down suggestions of launching the lifeboat, was now fired with urgency. The tiny figure took on a perilous significance. 
but even as they pushed out onto the whitening surf, Rab's last boat was already breaking up. time for the Reading Room Book Group. And uh, joining us this morning, our regular reviewer, Jill Hart from the High Street branch of Waterstones in Lincoln and Melanie Carroll, owner of Unicorn Tree Books in the Marketplace. Although I think, to be fair, you're the tea lady there as well, aren't no, you, Mel? I'm just about dogs. <laughs> yeah. This month, uh, a book sele- uh, selected for review, and it was my suggestion, actually. I think when we met up uh, to discuss the, uh, the the books, this was one of my suggestions, which I'm uh, quite proud of. And it's, it's taken from the Lincolnshire Libraries, a reading list, A Long Way Down by Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby is an English novelist and screenwriter, best known for his novels High Fidelity and About a Boy, and also for the football memoir Fever Pitch, which I think was his first book, actually. His work frequently touches upon music, sport, and the aimless and obsessive natures of his protagonists. He also wrote the screenplay for the film An Education, starring Kerry Mulligan, which I would heartily recommend. Published in 2005, A Long Way Down is Hornby's fourth novel. And a quick look at the cover. I think this is probably one of the most uninspiring covers we've had on this. What do you think, Jill? I think all the covers for his books do tend to look very similar. They've got the same format. They've got the sort of large, clear font, bright primary colours. I think it's it's good at selling exactly what it is, as yeah. it looks like lad lit, if you like. It, it looks what it's supposed exactly. to be. Mel, is so that, doing is it, the job, I think. Is that going to take you, take, make you take it off the shelf, Mel? Um, well, seeing as I'd be looking at it spine on, yes, it would, because <laughs> the print's actually quite good. Um, but in terms of the cover, you're right, they're not very exciting covers, but I think people buy Nick Hornby because they know it's Nick Hornby. Yeah. So therefore, the covers actually don't need to be that inspiring. Yeah, true, true. Okay, uh, it's New Year's Eve at Topper's House, North London's most popular suicide spot, and four strangers are about to discover that doing away with yourself isn't quite the private act they'd each expected. Four strangers who moments before were all convinced they were alone and going to end it all that way, sit down together, share out the pizza and begin to talk. The story is told from the viewpoint of all four characters and here's an extract from the opening chapter. I know what you're thinking, all you clever, clever people who read The Guardian and shop at Waterstones and would no more think of watching breakfast television than you would of buying your children's cigarettes. You're thinking... Oh, this guy wasn't serious. He wanted a tabloid photographer to capture his quote-unquote cry for help so that he could sign a My Suicide Hell exclusive for The Sun. Sharp takes the sleazy way out. And I can understand why you might be thinking that, my friends. I climb a stairwell, have a couple of nips of scotch from a hip flask while dangling my feet over the edge, and then some dippy girl asks me to help her find her ex-boyfriend at some party. I shrug and wander off with her. And how suicidal is that? That's an excerpt taken from A Long Way Down. Uh, now, Jill, you've already said the word lad lit this morning. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so, so what did you think of Nick Hornby's A Long Way Down? I thought it was um, very deceptively simple to a certain extent. It seems like a very simple narrative. Uh, the four characters are chatty, their sentences are short, but it's actually very carefully constructed. Um, everything is put together with the, each scene very carefully with a, a central feature 
it begins with the suicide that is the subject, which is taken very lightly, obviously. It's treated humorously. But it begins right at the very beginning of the book with a retrospective narration from each character. So it's obvious that they don't jump. So that allows us to um, find a, a situation yes. humorous that really isn't. So it's very, very carefully put together, even from the first sentence. OK. Mel, what yeah. did you think? I really enjoyed it. I thought it, do, it does deal with, with something that is actually an incredibly complex situation you know the the whole idea of suicide is not an easy idea to get around jill's right in that reading style it just reads so easily and at surface value you can miss a lot of the the actual um seriousness involved in the book there's actually you know at times it deals quite well with with the overlook of depression how how do we acknowledge depression how does depression feel and the whole thing of suicide, there's, there's, a, there's a particularly good bit, I thought, in the second part where Martin turns around and after, after it's been revealed that they were thinking of it and didn't kill themselves, he, he addresses this issue of the fact that actually having failed to commit suicide is almost worse than having committed suicide because there's no sympathy value. So I think there's, there's actually some, some very meaty sections in there that you almost miss because of how easily it's actually written. Yeah. But his characters are all, they're all very sorry for themselves, really. You know, it's, you can't take them too seriously because of their, you know, they've got, you've got Martin, who's basically he's orange, <laughs> Mr. Shallow. Yeah. Um, you've got JJ, who is very pretentious and self-absorbed. You've got um, Maureen, who has, she's, she's the character that's put into balance yeah. it a bit. She's, she's very timid, she's downtrodden, she's got a sick child, she's very lonely. But she is actually dealing with the whole thing through such a victim mentality that, mm. again, you know, she's... Uh, and then you've got Jess, who's the most interesting character in some ways because she is the narrative device by which Hornby actually moves the plot along. She is what instigates action in the plot. And on one level, I agree with what Jill's saying. And on another, for me, that's why as a suicide book and as a book that potentially could deal with the whole issue and widen the issue of depression actually makes it slightly more compelling because all of those things are true but the simple fact is that depression actually affects shallow people um and all Mm. of this and do we lessen the value of depression and suicidal thoughts because those people are initially shallow or because they brought the situation upon themselves does that lessen the issue at heart and i think there's a little bit in there where nick hornby has deliberately i think has deliberately almost parodied these people to sort of reflect that back and and make us address how do we actually look at people do we look at you weak idiot sort of mentality or in effect do we turn around and go you know what the truth of the matter is these thoughts affect probably everybody at some point you know whether you make it up to the top of of the tower and dangle your feet over or not so so i think there is there is there is the way in which it, it is light-hearted i think there also is is quite a strong element for arguing that actually what what hornby's done is actually take a very serious subject and address it in quite a good way that in book groups or in you know perhaps classroom settings you could use this book to turn around and say actually what are the real issues at heart yeah but the points that he makes at the end, the sort of moral points, if you like, if you have to have that in <laughs> such a, a light novel, but is that everybody finds New Year's Eve depressing, which yeah. is true, no matter yeah. who you are. It's important to say what you want are the terms that they use. Even if what you want isn't available, you've got to know what you want before you can move anywhere. Yeah. 
and his point that three months makes a difference, this, the time heals issue, and that three months generally makes mm. most things better or different. Yeah. And what you're worrying now, three months' time, it'll be something different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The only thing I'm going to disagree with you on there, Jill, is mm. I had some pretty good New Year's Eves in my 20s. <laughs> good for you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my feelings on this, but I read it uh, initially. When it first came out, I, I took it straight off the shelf, uh, probably the day it came out. I, really, uh, I was really looking forward to it. Um, and actually, it hit me at a time when I was pretty down, and it, it helped me. It, it was it was nice to mm. know that there were other people. I, I certainly was I wasn't feeling you know I certainly wasn't feeling suicidal, but I was I was I was pretty down, and it, it was nice to know that you know other people are, are thinking you know yes. similar yes. thoughts. And it's not just you know it's not just you, which you can get wallowed in that self pity at the time. And yes. I, I wouldn't say it was mm. responsible for my <laughs> my recovery out of that pit of despair, but it helped. But the point that a bit um, of time makes a lot of difference. Yeah, and, and yes. that's the point he's making yes. is, is that it you is. know it, it, it is it's a self help group. Yeah. That's yes, what they are. Yeah, now, one of the uh, criticisms of the book, I think at the time, uh, so one of the reviewers couldn't, didn't quite believe that they were actually depressed enough to jump. I mean, did you, were you, you, know, did you believe that any of those people would jump off that building on that New Year's Eve? Thinking about the individual characters, Martin, no, mm. I don't think so, because he sat up there too long thinking about it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Maureen, probably yes. I think the line that when she is asked why she was doing it, she said that there was not enough to stop me. Mm. And I think just the emptiness of her life, possibly she would have gone through with it. The others, no. No, I don't think so. No. Yeah, I, I think there were certain cries, cries for help there, I think. I think the fact that they actually use a real jumper, as they call it, at some point yes. in the narrative, they go up there on, I think, Valentine's, Valentine's Day, Day. And there is somebody up there contemplating suicide who, when he catches sight of this motley crew approaching mm. him, actually jumps, which, you know, not being <laughs> a bit well, no, facetious it. there. But, but no, it does actually make the point that it is serious and that this does happen for some people. He does yeah. deal with, he doesn't take the subject so lightly. You mm. do lose sight of it, which I think is, I think it's very cleverly crafted. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So what about favourite characters, Mel? I have to be honest and say I didn't have a favourite character amongst any of them. There were, um, you know, there were sections of the book where each character actually shone. I think Jill probably is right in that Jess comes over probably as the most um, well presented. Well, not well presented. She's a complete nutter, but um, <laughs> well well written character in that she's much more vibrant perhaps and carries it much more than the others. I think she's less of a less used as a character than she's a, a, a young girl grieving for a sister, out of control, very suggestive. But I think she's actually used more as a narrative device. I think she she's drives there. She the drives book. the plot. Uh, at the beginning of the book, she's the one that gets them down off the roof going to search for some, yeah. some errant boyfriend. She then um, invents an angel that they've seen which mm -hmm. gets them lots of press coverage makes some very humorous scenes and takes them on to the next stage of the plot which is going on holiday which the money from from that facilitates she's the one at the end that puts together an intervention where she gets all the characters and all yeah. their family friends and and people that they have becoming um, difficulties with mm -hmm. together she is the actual bit she's, of the plot she's almost that a ties facilitator. it together she is yes yeah yeah i think i found uh, at first i found it quite her quite hard work mm. i think and i think that's a true mm. example yes. of, a, of a teenage girl i think it's <laughs> exactly you know yes. sort of but they you know it's kind of uh, it was worth it in there it's worth putting the time in in the end and uh kathleen 
uh, a co-host of the Siren Surgery here at Siren FM, knew we were going to be reviewing this. And she's told us that Nick Hornby, A Long Way Down, was brilliant. It got me wanting to read it all the way through straight away. The character's interaction was interesting as there were people that would not usually choose to spend time together. A good read indeed. And also our regular uh, reviewer via email, Kathy from Lincoln. I like this book. I like the way the author developed the characters. And though the common theme was depression and suicide, it was uh, related in a funny, sad, yet unsentimental way. The characters were an unlikely mix, narrating their unhappiness and highlighting their incompatibility, but their need for each other while they tried to find a meaning to their lives. I like the way the author drew me into the story, and though the characters were not always likeable, I was interested in how their lives unfolded. This, to me, was how good storytelling should be done. Now, Kathy's point there about likeable characters is a difficult line to draw because you have to create three-dimensional characters with flaws and faults to make them interesting. But as Sue Moorcroft told us uh, very early on in our reading room career, if you make them too horrid, then it can ruin the book. And do you think she got the balance right here, Mel? What, did Nick Hornby get the balance did right, Nick you Hornby, mean? Yeah, I'm, saying, <laughs> I'm changing his sex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, th- I think so. I mean, but then Nick Hornby generally does, because of the element of humour and satire that actually runs through his books. Yeah. Um, even when you really don't like the character, you find them mildly amusing and actually tag on to that aspect JJ was the character that initially I found the hardest to actually get to grips with and I struggled with him until the point um, as as Jill reminded me until the point where he starts talking about books and then because his um, his his feelings about books are so similar to mine you know being being kind of excluded and isolated because you happen to like reading Mm. Um, once he began talking about that at that point I began to like him more because because there were more similarities between us. That was probably the only similarity between us. But um, and, and I think that's what Nick Hornby does quite well. He puts little elements throughout his books, even with the characters that you, you dislike the most, that, that are common Joe characters, yeah. that everybody can tag on to a little bit. I see. I think the point that you're making there about the reading was quite interesting, because the books that he is absorbing himself mm. in to read are biographies of people who have <laughs> killed themselves uh, yeah. he spends a lot of time talking about both literally literary and musical suicides quotes oscar wilde is reading richard ford which i think richard ford is one of my favorite writers but he ain't no barrel of laughs no. and i think it's interesting that maybe you have to be careful what you read because it does affect your state of mind which is mm. obviously yeah. one of the things that's taking him down into the blues isn't it yeah. Yeah, i think that's quite an interesting point yeah, yeah, I think it'd be like that with uh, with, mm. with music too. Mm. Um, now, one review I read uh, describes uh, this book of having hornbification, and I think we've we've hit on this a little bit so far, which implies he has his own style. Now, I mean, Mel, you you've been saying uh, you know what Nick Hornby does, what he do, you mm. know this, that, and the other. So you've read his other work. Yeah, well, I haven't read all of them. I haven't read Fever Pitch. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I'm not going to recommend that to you. Good, good. Uh, what about you, Jill? Well, I haven't read him before. Um, what pleased me quite a lot about this is that it is so carefully, neatly done. I was talking to Mel earlier and suggesting it's a bit like a, a, a dress that you can pick yeah. it apart at the seams and you can lay all the pieces out very neatly. You can see exactly how it fits together. It's yeah. mm. very cleverly, carefully um, and professionally done. So I, I quite liked that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the balance of, of, of humour and the subject mm. matter of suicide, did he get that right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think using one character, Maureen, who's actually got some more serious issues rather than just being um, depressed with her life yeah. for no apparent reason other than her own inability to deal with it, it's actually added a little bit of ballast to it as well. 
all the other characters, all the characters in the book are displaced. They've all lost their sense of belonging. They've all lost the group of people that they identify with, apart from Maureen, who's never had one in the first place. And her journey is much greater than the other characters and makes that point much stronger. She goes from being in a situation with a disabled child with nobody at all she gets a real response when she starts listening to the music that JJ plays her, yeah. plays her. She has a real response. She has another real response to the world when she's taken on holiday. She's never been on a holiday. And then she meets some people who get her involved in pub quizzes and mm-hmm. get her a job. And her journey is much greater. And I think that that sort of balance adds a little bit of ballast to the lightweightness, if you like, of the other characters yeah yeah i think i'd agree with that maureen's journey maureen is the one that was genuinely depressed yes you know and with genuine reasons for the depression and all of what comes out of it is 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 hornby's almost saying actually all that we actually need is we need connections with other human beings Mm. to help us break out sometimes of cycles that we may be caught in which is quite a telling moral agenda yeah yeah, I do too. Okay, so now, winding up, uh, something we're going to do every month now, which is just a quick yes or no. Are you going to recommend this to the reading room readers? Uh, readers? You don't read this, you listen to it. <laughs> the uh, the listeners, Mel? Yes. 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 And it's a yes from me. Now, if we had a bell, we'd be ringing it. And uh, next month, next month, uh, we've got John Peel's Margrave of the Marshes, and we're going to have a bit of a special, a John Peel special next month. Uh, we're going to be playing some John Peel sessions, bands that uh, he discovered and played out first, and also we're going to play a couple of unsigned acts as well which is kind of uh, we hope in the spirit of John Peel if you've read that book and uh, I'm guessing guys of a certain age uh, would have got that for Christmas a couple of years back I know I did and uh, that's uh, reading room at sirenonline.co.uk you can email and that email address is open all month Hi I'm Richard Herring and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die my name is Caroline McLean. I am from thereadingroom.com and I recommend The Sound of One Hand Clapping by Richard Flanagan because it is a book about new beginnings in a new land and I think new beginnings is something for everyone. Sometimes when we, we introduce material, we provide uh, introductions and explanations, such as last month we provided some, uh, some background to the 1923 Great Canto Earthquake before, we read Louis, uh, before Louis Malloy read his superb story, Aftershock. Uh, the poem you're about to hear, however, requires no explanation. This is Lisa Denham reading her poem, Cancer. Cancer is rotten cells. It blackens your insides. It takes over your mind and it eats up your flesh. Cancer is you. It is your life. It plays games with your head and hides itself in all your most important body parts. It allows you to go ahead and blame yourself for its existence. If it wasn't for your habits, it wouldn't be punishing you. Cancer is brutal and it gives you false hope. It pleads with doctors and nurses to massacre your body, returning again after you're sure that it's gone. It laughs in your face and showers itself in your tears. But the droplets don't purify the murderous cancer. No, the cancer gives you so much pain and exhaustion, your tears stop falling. You lie in your bed and watch yourself wasting away second by second. Your skeletal body is the almost perfect result. It's been savagely eaten away at, cell by cell. You get pumped full of chemicals and you lose your hair. You don't know what the morphine is doing to your already grotty insides, but you force out a smile because the pain is distant for a while. Sleeping is turmoil, it comes and it goes, 
one minute you're sleeping so deeply you may as well be dead but the next you're so restless you feel the cancer dancing in your head you feel it tormenting you you hear its screeching laughter as you try to reason with it asking it to give you a little bit longer you tell yourself that you'll beat it and live to tell the tale you change your diet to salad and fruit convincing yourself that being healthy will show the cancer you've learnt your lesson you're ready to live but as time spills away and you're lying on your deathbed you realise you're never going to beat this you can't use the toilet without aid or swallow your food you can't recognise yourself anymore or talk without the stench of cancer shooting through the air but all that matters is that no one deserves this although it took you away from earth you're still here and more free than ever before. You were loved by everyone, it is hated by everyone. Uh, now it's time to uh, join John Grubb, the editor of the Lincolnshire Echo and also the chairman of the Lincoln Book Festival. Now I started asking John uh, what the chairman's role was. Well, good question. I mean, uh, essentially, the, the Lincoln Book Festival, of course, was previously run by the City Council. But as a result of budget cuts, they were forced to, basically, they weren't able to staff it and organise it anymore. So all I did really was get together some concerned local businesses and local citizens, put together a group of people to raise some money to save the book festival. And since then, that was two years ago now, this will be our second one that we've organised. So, I mean, it, it's no more complicated than um, I just happen to be the, the person who corrals the support, I guess, of, of those people out there that want to save it. Yeah, yeah it is an extremely well-supported event, which, which just goes to prove that over its, its short life, um, you know, sort of what, what effect it has on the city, really. I think it's a hugely important part of the cultural life of Lincoln. Increasingly, as the university grows, I think it's really important that we have a good cultural offering. Tourism's also enormously important to the county as a whole, and, and particularly to the city. So it's really important that we maintain lots of the various different events, um, artistic, cultural uh, kind of events that go on, and, and I think this just forms part of that. Yeah, certainly. And with uh, now, without uh, the aid of uh, a visit Lincolnshire, I suppose, is, uh, uh, do, you, do you find that's taking a, a hit on, on organising such an event as this? Well, it did specifically for the book festival. Um, I mean, I should declare an interest in that. I was chairman of Visit Lincolnshire as well. So Visit Lincolnshire were playing a very key role in helping us to put together and and organise and publicise the event. So obviously their disappearance was a blow to us. We'll, we'll manage to get through this year. And um, another name that, uh, that that crops up a lot with the, with the Lincoln Book Festival is the former poet laureate, Sir Andrew Motion. He's, uh, uh, is, it, is it the patron? He is indeed, yes. And uh, what, what role does, does Andrew play there? Firstly, obviously, spreading the word is vastly important. And Sir Andrew is a, you know, a towering figure in, in the world of literature. So to have his name associated with the festival is fantastic, both in terms of, of giving it kudos within that sort of literary world, but also fantastic for us in terms of him being able to go out and, and tell people about what a great event it is. Um, there are the big names to attract people in the festival, but certainly um, what appears to me as I, as I flick through the, uh, the the wonderful brochure is a, a good mix of, of names, but also up-and-coming talent, uh, certainly with like the new writers' night as well. Well, I mean, we try as much as possible to create a festival which has a little bit for everybody, not just in terms of the um, names themselves, but in terms of the genres they represent. So clearly we have people from the world of poetry, from crime, 
all sorts of fiction and, in fact, non-fiction. So we try as much as possible to make it an event that anybody can go to, or at least you know, find something in there that's for them. And I think it's important both to have the kind of names that will attract the bigger crowds, but also we do want the festival to, to do two things, really. First of all, to give an opportunity to new and young writers, but more particularly local new and young writers, I think, is really important. But also to give an opportunity for those people who, who perhaps will be the great Lincolnshire authors of the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly I, something I was I was coming towards. When we first started uh, the Reading Room last year, we uh, I was unsure about the amount of, uh, of material we would have. And actually, we find ourselves, you know, swimming in a vast ocean uh, of talent and people coming forward. Uh, there is a huge amount of writing talent in the county. Well, I think uh, Lincolnshire's always had a, um, a fantastic heritage of producing creative minds, not not just in literature, but in science and, and discovery and, and all, all manner of different things. So I, I, I mean, I believe that creativity and clearly that's a key part of writing is is in the DNA of Lincolnshire. And they say everybody's got at least one book in them. I haven't quite found mine yet, but I'll keep looking. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you've got some stories to tell, John. <laughs> None that I want to share at the moment. <laughs> now, also, there's a couple of new uh, new events coming uh, to this year's festival. Uh, there's the Written Treasures. What would tell us about the Lincolnshire's Written Treasures? The sort of historic side of Lincolnshire clearly is part of its culture, and the Wren Library. I mean, I've been in Lincolnshire, um, or at least editor of the Echo now, five and a half years, and, and only recently myself had an opportunity to explore the Wren Library. I think that we have an absolutely enormous wealth of amazing historical artefacts in the Wren Library. I mean, even down to things like the first written documented connection between Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest appears in a book that's in the Wren Library. And certainly we hope the Book Festival will give people an opportunity to, um, or a reminder that these things are on their doorstep and they should check them out. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if it's done nothing else, it's drawn my attention to the Wren Library. Again, at the, when we were up at the uh, the launch for the Lincoln Book Festival, that was the time I found out about it. I mean, uh, we, we have this, but uh, I don't know, maybe we could do with better publicity for that. <laughs> well, I think the problem is, I guess this is true of everywhere, we tend to forget those things that are close to home. You know, many people in, in Lincolnshire right now are probably planning days away and weekends away and perhaps even holidays, and, and to a large extent, we tend to marvel at some of the places that we might go and say how fantastic they are, and yet many of us forget the, the amazing places that we have on our doorstep. Now, looking ahead also in the, in the book here, it says uh, that you've planned, uh, you've got the dates ready for the uh, 2012 or the 2012 uh, book festival. Yes, there. yes. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, it's been tough. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that, that putting together a festival with with no or virtually no public funding and no permanent staff is something of a challenge. Yeah. But I think we understand that there's enough support. And I have to say the, the businesses and organisations that, that, that have stepped forward to help us have been numerous and, and fantastic in their support. So so we believe there's enough support there to, to continue it going. And of course, the bottom line is that the festival can only get bigger the more money we're able to raise because clearly some of the, the, the really big names tend to cost quite a lot of money to get them to come here and the more the more we can get funding the, the bigger we can make the festival and then the more tickets we can sell and it becomes a becomes a sustainable uh, an event for the future so we're very confident we can keep it going um, in some form or other but clearly uh, continued funding and support is quite key to that. And of course, uh, people can become a, a friend of the festival. Uh, how would they, they? How would they go about that? And what's in it for them? You, you can 
join, I'm sure, looking at the website will give you all the details that you require. Um, um, the details are also in the brochure that you've referred to there, which, which you can get from lots of outlets and places around the city. I mean, becoming a friend has a, no, a number of, um, of benefits. I mean, first and foremost, it means that we've got a bedrock of supporters to whom we can sell tickets and, and to whom we can ask advice about who we should get in the future and, and people who we know are keen that the festival continues and that really is you know hugely vital. At the end of the day we can raise money from sponsorship, we can get commercial partners but clearly if people don't attend the events then, then it has no future so that's really important. I mean really the success and whether or not the festival survives and thrives will be down to the people of Lincoln and the more we can get supporting us the better. The Reading Room on Siren 107.5 3FM. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Reading Room, Room 10. Uh, we're going to be along uh, sooner than normal because we're going to have our Reading Room live podcast to follow. This will be Room 10A and Room 10B uh, for those uh, aficionados of uh, room numbers. Uh, I'll be performing myself in that, all written and ready, and uh, very, very excited about it. And after that, coming up in June, it's going to be a special John Peel episode. All the music will be selected from things like John Peel sessions. Uh, and I think in the spirit of John Peel, we've already said we're going to play some unsigned bands as well, uh, which we're really looking forward to. And of course, our book group will be reviewing Margrave of the Marshes, uh, John Peel's autobiography, co-written with his wife after John's death. And you can contact us, reading room at sirenonline.co.uk, especially if you've read the John Peel book. But of course, let us know what else you're reading. And of course, watch out halfway through the month for those Reading Room Live podcasts.